Here is a box, a musical box, wound up and ready to play. Can you guess what is in it today? It's Box 39. On this week's show... World War One in our community, a hundred years ago. With Bill Lawrence, Adrian Cohen and Ian Tallentire. With special guest, Mike Harwood. everybody welcome to everyone listening to our box 39 special world war one in our community and it's a unique and feature-length show running for two hours and we're here live in the studio My name is Bill Lawrence, and I'm here with Ian and Adrian, Mike, and our 16-piece house band, Ausgang Exit, led by Professor Henry. And as we are live in Studio One at Colm Radio Towers throughout this evening, it's going to be a terrific, terrific show. So, Ian, tell us what a special show this is going to be. Well, it certainly should be, Bill. With echoes still resonating 100 years later from the end of the First World War, we bring you a unique blend of stories, interviews, music and features that reflect the place that World War I has had and still does have here in our community. And as Bill and myself return from our own visits to the cemeteries and battlefields last week, we hope to examine what lies at the core of our nation's desire for remembrance 100 years on from the armistice that ended the First World War at exactly 11am on the 11th of November, 1918. And with this, our extended show, Anton, is in our social media hub just over there, ready to pass on your thoughts and feelings about what has been really a quite special time of remembrance in our community. So text us, email us at studio at conradio.com, or join us on, we're on Twitter and Facebook at box 39 Colm Radio. So, with our team of technicians poised to press their buttons and slide their faders in perfect harmony once more, it's time for us to open our Box 39 World War I Community Special. Bent double like old beggars under sacks. Knock need. Coughing like hags, we cursed through sludge, till on the haunting flares we turned our backs and towards our distant rest began to trudge. Men marched asleep, many had lost their boots but limped on, bloodshod. All went lame, all blind, drunk with fatigue, deaf even to the hoots of disappointed shells that dropped behind. Gas, gas, quick boys, an ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time. But someone still was yelling out and stumbling and floundering like a man in fire or lime. Dim through the misty panes and thick green light, as under a green sea, I saw him drowning. In all my dreams, before my helpless sight, he plunges at me. Guttering, choking, drowning. If in some smothering dreams you too could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in and watch the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face like a devil's sick of sin. If you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth-corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud of vile incurable sores on innocent tongues. My friend, you would not tell with such high zest 
to children ardent for some desperate glory. The old lie. Dulce et decorum est. Pro patria. Mori. Come, you masters of war. Here that build the big guns. Here that build the death planes. Here that build all the bombs. Here that hide behind walls. Here that hide behind discs. I just don't want you to know I can see through your masks. You that never done nothing but build to destroy. You play with my world like it's your little toy. You put a gun in my hand. And you hide from my eyes And you turn and run farther when the fast bullets fly Like Judas of old You lie and deceive A world war can be won You want me to believe This is uh, Mike Harwood, your roving Box 39 reporter, who has just had incredible uh, four days in France visiting the battlefields with Clive Harris, who is the owner of Battlefield Tours. To go and see the ground, you see the folds in the land, you see why certain places are important, you can see why we need to capture a wood or capture a hill. If you just see the name on a war memorial, you can only see that as a loss of life. So what we're trying to do is not glorify the war, but contextualise those casualties that you've seen from home. Important, yes. yeah, absolutely. So people have a better understanding yeah. of, of, of you know why their relatives served, and certainly why, in, in some cases, they never came home. Feeling much worse. You know, the Great War uh, is a community experience, and I think that's its enduring quality. It's why we talk about it a hundred years on, and we'll talk about it in another hundred years. Is because it was a collective experience that happened to us all up and down the country, regardless of whether you're a rural city person. All of our families were directly affected by the war. It leads us to search for more and more information, and in many ways, as a nation. We change as a result of the Great War. We've come a long way from where we began. Now we may be just coming back to terms with, as a nation ourselves, we're coming out of a period of conflict for the last 10, 15 years. Soldiers on active service probably have a better understanding of soldiers now than we would have done in the 1980s. It's only in recent times that we've felt duty-bound to commemorate or to study the German perspective as much as our own. Because yeah. you can only you can only get half a picture from one half of the story. Yeah. Yeah. Right here for you till the day you're home. Carry on. Give me all the strength I need. As a nation, Germany is probably less likely to be visiting in mass numbers. Yeah. Um, what happens to them is they will come across if they're visiting, visiting a particular grave and it will be their family member. There aren't historical associations, there aren't people researching the history of their villages in the Great War and I think that's yeah. probably the, the shadow of 39-45 casts backwards as well as it casts images, forwards. Yeah. 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 A very important thing that a veteran once told me, a First World War veteran, I think it sums it up and I think it's in one area where we may sometimes sell the generation that fought, fought the war short. I can remember him saying, there was a chap called Alan, he was called Alan Short and he was a post office rifleman and he said to me, Clive, we don't want sympathy from your generation, we want empathy.
World War One in our community a hundred years ago. Well, that's uh, the Black Adder theme that. Henry and the boys from House Gang Exit and the girls, of course, are knocking out over there in the corner of the studio. And I'd just like to apologise uh, for the oversensitive quality of the radio, of the cone radio equipment, who did pick up the background noise of the bus there uh, as Mike was talking to Clive Harris. Anyway, a bit more from the boys. <laughs> Well, like Mike, uh, I've been to the battlefield sites. I've been very lucky, actually, to visit the battle sites, the museums and the tunnels, the trenches and the cemeteries and the chocolate shops for over 20 years now. And Ian is also uh, very experienced in those visits, too. But, you know, every time I go, every year, I am moved. I'm challenged. I'm shocked. Mike, you recently toured the battlefields for the first time. Mike, tell us what your tour involved. Mike's not here yet. Oh, this will be him now. Hello? Yes, we're on the air now. Yep, go ahead. Mike says it was a Battlefields tour and it followed Wilfred Owen's experiences on the Somme and a spell he had in a field hospital in... Uh... Sorry, I can't hear you very well, Mike. Speak up a bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, Okay. He says the highlight was really a, a day on the 4th of November, which was the Mayor's commemoration of what uh, Britain and the Commonwealth did in France, uh, which was a whole day of activities, and it was very moving. He says the tour guide he had on his coach, there were two coaches, was a Vivian Wilton, who was brilliant. She's a poet, a writer, literary person, and an historian. And she produced a fantastic booklet that Mike carried with him at all times to all the battlefields, including maps at the time of the battles, and letters, and poems which were really, which really shed a lot of light and were very moving. Uh, letters from Wilfred Owen to his mother. So the reality of the hardship and the violence was there in the poems. And it was kind of interesting to see Wilfred Owen muting them down a bit in his letters to his mother. Although they were still realistic. So how did, so how did that make you feel, Mike? It's obviously quite a, an extensive and uh, heavy input trip. Plenty of destinations, plenty of information. How did it make you feel emotionally? Well, as Mike said earlier, it exceeded all expectations. Uh, but what he didn't expect was that because it was his first trip, he was constantly moved and it was engaging all of his senses. And especially, for example, on the Mayor's Day, the commemoration the whole day of events, the violinist appeared from the cellar where Wilfred Owen spent his last night before he was shot the next day and that was at six o'clock in the morning. And then Mike and the party followed Owen's footsteps through the wood and to the canal. And it was very moving and there were smoke fireworks what was the what was the most poignant, the most moving element of the uh, the whole trip for you? Well, he says there were were so many, but one of them was the was the playing of the bugle, uh, something about a German prisoner, uh, a bugle that was played by the banks of the canal where Owen died, where he was shot by a sniper. And that morning at six o'clock, as the sun, as the dawn was coming up, 
with the smoke recreated and the speeches and the music of the violin and the bugle that will always stay with Mike forever it sounds quite an emotional but quite a, a special time for you there Mike now many other people visit the battlefields particularly over the last four years marking the 100th anniversary since the beginning and the end of the war it's an important feature of life still in those countries and we'll be looking in detail at a few sites that have a personal resonance for us and also looking at that part of the war uh, that part rather that war plays even today in the daily lives of people from the Somme and the salient communities so that's all coming up in our box 39 world war one community special here on cone radio Oh, they put me in the army and they handed me a pack. They took away my nice new clothes and dolled me up in cack. They marched me 20 miles a day to fit me for the war. I didn't mind the first 19, but the last one made me sore. Ridge emerges, massed and done, in the wild purple of the glowering sun, smouldering through spouts of drifting smoke that shroud the menacing scarred slope, and one by one tanks creep and topple forward to the wire. The barrage roars and lifts, then clumsily bowed with bombs and guns and shovels and battle gear, men jostle and climb to meet the bristling fire. Lines of grey, muttering faces, masked with fear, they leave their trenches, going over the top, while time ticks blank and busy on their wrists, and hope, with furtive eyes and grappling fists, flounders in the mud. Oh, Jesus, make it stop. said that the best way to commemorate the war is to pull up its roots and examine them. So the opportunity to see these roots for themselves drove several of Colchester school students to visit the battlefields for themselves last week to gain a better understanding of the people and the places they've been studying for themselves in their history lessons in school. For teenagers with their comfortable 21st century lives, such visits can be a challenge, particularly emotionally, as they experience the full horrors of the war not necessarily found from their school books in the classroom. For young adults, the experience can be a memorable mixture of emotional and educational understanding and development, giving rise to experiences and feelings that can be surprising and unexpected. Box 39 was privileged to meet three Colchester students aged 13 in Belgium last week. They'd spent four days touring the Ypres Salient in Belgium and the Somme in northern France, both theatres of unimaginable devastation, suffering and loss of human life. We spoke with Ruby and Sophie, but first we talked to Dorothy, a 13-year-old student from a school in the Colchester area. Uh, 
Um, so I have no relatives in the, who fought in the war, but I adopted a friend who was called H.D. Greaves. He was a rifleman and he was in 6th Battalion and he was part of the King's Liverpool Regiment. And he, but he died on the, on the 20th of September on 1917 at age 31. I found out that he had met a group, so on his line he had many people who were with him at that time. Well, I felt quite emotional for them because they went through quite a lot of pain, like being blown up and seeing their friends die right in front of their eyes. They must have felt quite sad and uh, all alone. The Germans, they had many graves piled into one. So I, was thinking to, I was just thinking to myself, oh, I don't think they deserve this all. But with the English, they thought, oh, we're the best, so we can just pile them all in one. Okay. And how did walking through the Commonwealth war graves make you feel? Well, I felt I felt like I was like in the in the feet of them, feeling what they went through, looking at all the graves of their loved ones, seeing what they had to go through. Over there, behind Bill. No, no, you're next to Ian. No, further back, further back. Can you can you crunch it together a bit? That's it. Over there by the wall. Yeah. Okay. <coughs> So we are looking at some of the special battlefield sites now that we visited over in Belgium and anyone can go and visit and I hope you go yourselves. Let's start with one called Lissenhoek Military Cemetery. Ian, what do we know about that? Uh, we found it by accident about four <laughs> years ago. True. Very true. <laughs> I think that's true. Um, I was on a school trip and uh, somehow my coach managed to escape and uh, get on a ferry early and we had a couple of hours that we needed to to use in a constructive way with the students. Oh, we, oh, we, oh, you were, I thought you went, you were a school trip as a student. No, 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 no. You no. look far too old for that sort of no. thing. So, <laughs> no, listen to Military Cemetery then. What, what is it, Military Cemetery? It's the second largest uh, cemetery for Commonwealth forces, um, well, in Europe. Um, there are... 29 nationalities are buried there, which include soldiers from the UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, India, France, Germany, the USA, and also from the Chinese Labour Corps. It seems, uh, it sounds like quite a good place to start then, so you get a sense of everyone that was involved. What, what, what are the majority of, of people buried there from what nationality, though? Um... They are the Commonwealth nations, so you've got a mixture of the, the British, the Canadians, Australians and South Africans there in the main. And uh, what, what are, is it like a typical cemetery? Have they got sort of typical World, one feature, World War I features in the, in the cemeteries? Did they put anything in all the cemeteries? Cross of Sacrifice. Yeah. Sort of, uh, well, yes. So what's a cross of sacrifice? That has a sword on it. has a sword off it. In repose, I think the word is. So yeah. it's point pointing down. down which basically is to signify that battle is over or that the sword is not going to be used in an aggressive manner. And there's also a stone altar, uh, very large, with the Kipling words on it. Um, you shall be remembered evermore, I think. I always stumble over those ones. Remind me, Mr History Teacher. Uh, it's a big white one, that's what I'm going to remind you. It's a big white it's one, big designed white one. by a certain Mr Lutyens, <laughs> who also designed the cenotaph. So, what's the First World War Cemetery like, look like? Has it got flowers at the graves? Is there grass around it? They were designed in to be pretty much symmetrical. Um, and back in the 30s, it was said that the planting should be bold. Um, and you do get a beautiful mix of uh, flowering plants so that there is something in flower just about every time of year. The striking thing with Listenhook is it's the air is never still. There is always a breeze or a wind blowing, depending on when you go. And at the time of year that we visit, uh, what I always marvel at are the leaves being blown from the trees and them settling on the ground. And it is almost as if they are poppy leaves, lives mm. descending 
Um, and we, we went, yeah, we went in the afternoon, and you get the setting sun, don't yeah, you? Yeah, we're always there. Yeah, at that time of day, yeah. the sun comes down. It's just the most beautiful place. But the interesting thing, certainly for the children, is the mix of graves um, surrounding the perimeter of the graveyard are German graves. The main difference being that there's most commonly more than one body per headstone, mm. uh, which they find difficult to comprehend when there is utmost respect given for every Commonwealth soldier. They do struggle with the discrepancy in the treatment of the German dead. I would recommend that to anyone listening uh, as a great starter. If you're over in the Eep salient and you want a starter, go to Listenhook Military Cemetery and when you're there you'll find the grave of staff nurse Nellie Spindler who was one of only two British female casualties of World War One, buried in Belgium. to World War One in Our Community, a Box 39 special here on Colne Radio with Bill Lawrence, Adrian Cohen, Ian Tartire and Mike Harwood. Colchester in their role in the Great War. As headquarters of Eastern Region, Colchester's garrison supplied many of the men who prevented the early defeat of France. The town then became a training area for at least 100,000 recruits. While training, guns on the Western Front could often be heard. At times, Colchester's civilian population of 40,000 was equaled by 40,000 troops, either billeted with local families or housed in large tent cities, which eventually became hut cities. Thousands of requisitioned horses and trucks, artillery pieces and munitions were also assembled in the garrison. From 1917, with an average 20,000 troops to feed, long food queues became a daily civilian experience. As the war took its deadly toll, Colchester became one vast hospital as the wounded arrived by train. An enlarged garrison hospital, an enlarged civilian hospital and six Red Cross hospitals nursed at least 110,000 men. Colchester women made huge quantities of bandages, splints and gowns to alleviate the suffering of the war wounded. Colchester's factories produced uniforms, guns, shells, mines, compressors and engines. Paxman's, the largest firm of the town, produced a staggering 20 million precision machine parts. 
Over 10% of Colchester's adult men died in the conflict, the highest in eastern England and twice the national average. Small wonder the town built one of the finest civic war memorials in England. The logistical demands of these troop movements led the military to take control of St Botolph's railway station, today known as Colchester Town, closing it to civilian use. Motor cars, coal wagons, corporation carts, co-op vans and motor buses were requisitioned to carry stores to the station. One officer, taking a squad of soldiers to Chelmsford, stopped a tram in Head Street and ordered it to reverse and take them to North Station. Moving men and materials went on all night, assisted by the erection of arc lights over the St Botolph's goods yard. Late night bystanders watched with fascination. As the war progressed, some 15 regular army battalions moved into Colchester, replacing those who had now gone to France. Within days of Kitchener's famous appeal for 100,000 men, Colchester was also selected to train many of his volunteers. There had not been so many soldiers in Colchester, declared Gurney Benham, since the time of Bodicea. And all these troops put pressure on the district in many, many ways, but they were very good news for Colchester's shopkeepers. With the town's population more than 50% larger, the strain on infrastructure was considerable. Roads, still mostly surfaced with ground flints, took a heavy hammering as the army acquired more cars and lorries carrying goods and equipment either to the garrison or right through the town since the main road from London to Ipswich and the east coast ran through central Colchester via Lexton Road, Head Street, High Street and East Hill. And not just traffic. The constant marching of troops up Shrub End Road, Drury Road and Straight Road, Lexton, all still semi-rural, led to significant repair bills. Ella Caney of Colchester, born in 1897, recalled, I remember Kitchener's army coming into town and they shoved them anywhere they could. Different regiments would come into town and an officer would come round. They paid you sixpence a night for privates, no laundry or food, just give them decent accommodation. And this from Frank Blandon, born in 1905. We had two blokes from the Sussex Regiment in our house. And these chaps were a godsend really, because you got paid for having them. Many in Colchester, however, benefited as Kitchener's boys poured into town. Volunteers were happy to sell personal items to finance their short stay, and all forms of entertainment benefited. Visits to the Castle Museum and the cinemas soared, barbers were kept busy supplying haircuts, and Colchester's trams finally made a profit, charging soldiers in uniform a penny for a journey of any length. for four days and uh, living his poetry uh, the lines of Owen kept coming back to me um, in the situation of the, uh, the graves and seeing the actual landscape uh, the difficulty of taking a ridge actually being there was when he said and wrote poetry is war the pity of war all a poet can do is warn so rather than myself writing um, about Wilfred Owen I decided to draw on his um, poetry and his letters home for this poem about the value of friends and comrades in war. And uh, it's called Friends and the Pity of War. And the last letter he sent to his mother, he wrote, You could not be visited by a band of friends so fine as surround me here. That was a letter sent to his mother uh, on the 31st of October 1918. Uh, a week before the end of the war and he died of machine gun fire the following morning. Friends and the pity of war. Wilfred Owen's poetry is war, the pity of war. Of innocent men sacrificed in machine gun blood, all a poet can do is warn. 
Three days I was shell-holed with fellow officers, dead mangled arms sucked down in by stinking mud. Owen's poetry, The Pity of War. In a flooded trench, ten minutes seemed an hour, as tornadoes of shells showered my senses charred. I found sanctuary in the community of comrades, sanctuary in the field hospitals, smooth, warm sheets, but all a poet can do is warn. For if you could see the expressionless, blindfold look, the face of terror, a boy lying on top of me, my shoulder soaked with his blood, Owen's poetry, The Pity of War. Owen's last night in a dank, smoky cellar, his last letter to his mother, you could not be visited by a band of friends half so fine as surround me here. Dawn, the crossing of the Oise Sambra Canal, head split death by machine gun fire. All a poet can do is warn. Owen's poetry is war, the pity of war. And the sadness is that uh, Owen's mother, when she received the uh, news of his death a week later, it was on Armistice Day and the bells were ringing throughout Shrewsbury and the whole of the land. The dank cellar reminded my own experience in World War II. And uh, I was, uh, we were 10 miles outside Portsmouth. There was uh, uh, heavy bombing, heavy ACAC, um, searchlights, very vivid memory for a, a four-year-old. And the smell of the cellar, um, as it would have been um, it was Owen's last night, brought back to me what the earth smelt like um, just outside Portsmouth during a raid. On this particular occasion, the siren was late and my mother clutched me quickly, almost dropped me going down the garden to the Anderson shelter. Late siren, run for the Anderson. Clutched in mother's arms, flesh warm out of bed, downstairs stumble through the 30s kitchen. Night open air, barrage balloons tethered on cables. Searchlight sky saucers, low drone aircraft, white wisp cross tracers, ACAC clean muffled metallic, late siren shrapnel bursts through apples and grass. Tree greys on mother, red orange burns beyond shelter. Pajama rip race down into Anderson's freshly turned earth stamped down as floor. Musty earth, sunken spore odour, rock pebbled mud clamps clattering on curved roof corrugation. Parents hide blurred emotion, reload composure a child sees through. Eyes suspended in stared vision, in a moment of stillness, distant thrump of shells. Dozing on board strips, narrow as boat planks, dreaming of winciette sheets. Mummy, can we? We must wait for the all clear to walk into the cabbage dark dawn. Waiting, glimpse of baked bean tin. Innocence burning on the flame rise of candles. In the boys' book of adventure, dimly lit faces of First World War soldiers trenched in bright smiles. All over by Christmas. And uh, uh, initially, uh, uh, the... Uh, Generals and um, people behind uh, the war did believe it was all over by Christmas, but uh, as we have discovered, <laughs> it went on for four long years. The Colonel said these bodies sting. Won't someone come and drag them away? We tried to clean them up, but they mow us down. And the English colonel looks the other way The spirit is willing but the flesh is weak Well I ran for the trench but I had no time to speak My heart said yeah but my head said no When the English colonel said it's time to go He said, what's the few men? He said, what's the few men? He said, what's the few men? 
man The colonel's job is never done So he declares time out on Christmas Day We held the enemy in our arms And we plowed each other's dead into the clay several people who I'm related to who are in World War One. Um, my maternal grandfather's family, I have one person who was called Roy Reginald Wilson and he died on the 1st of March and he was 29 um, and he was a private and he was my great great uncle so he was quite close to be honest with my relation. Um, and unfortunately he died, but once he died, he, he has different private numbers. So I think someone's got it confused, which is quite sad, to be honest, to see, to think that someone could confuse a person. So, but you do have a record as to where he is uh, buried or commemorated, is that right? Yeah, I do. He's in the Zouave Valley Cemetery in Calais, um, in France. And. You also have a connection with another family member. Yes, yeah, so um, today we were lucky enough to visit Tynecott, um, which is a very, very, very famous cemetery. And I was quite shocked when I got there to believe that all those people there weren't even everyone who was in the war. Um, but I, I was really relieved to find that my great-great-uncle, who was called Alec Cole, was there. Um, he was unfortunately um, aged 22 when he died. Um, he died on the 22nd of August, um, which is obviously quite sad and to lose my great great uncles, um, not very easy. But um, he was a private and I, I was very happy so I could see his name on a stone. Um, I mean, unfortunately he didn't have a headstone because he obviously died in quite an unfortunate way. but. Um, at least I, he was identified, I think that's quite, at least that's a good thing that I could see him. So how does it make you feel? Um, well, I was quite emotional. Um, I admit I cried because um, when I think about World War One, I, I think about everyone who was in it, but I don't, I don't think anyone really realises how bad it was. Amid the carnage of the Western Front, the Wipers Times was a beacon of light and humour. The editors of this mischievous rag were known as Lenin and Trotsky by senior officers and had no journalistic experience. They were soldiers of the 12th Battalion of the Sherwood Foresters. Searching for metal and timber to shore up trenches, they stumbled upon a printing press in Ypres, known as Wipers by the Tommies who had difficulty pronouncing the name of this Belgian frontline town. Aided by their Civvy Street printer, Sergeant Tyler, the two decided to use the press to print a newspaper. It was not a journal of record, but a journal of jokes. While the war poetry fo focused on futility and loss, the Wipers Times celebrated the camaraderie, absurdity and tragedy of life in the trenches. It was satirical, mawkish, groaningly punny and incredibly funny. The Wipers Times 
often edited under fire, was an instant hit in the trenches. It ran from February 1916 until December 1918 for 23 issues. Throughout, the editors were involved in the fiercest battles, including the Somme and Passchendaele. The Wipers Times remains an enduring testimony to the resilience of the human spirit in the face of overwhelming adversity. So, as Auskang exit, continue with the Blackadder theme. Let's just listen to Big Sue there on the trumpet. So, we are looking at some of the special battlefield sites that we've visited over on the Somme this time in northern France. Now, a former underground quarry which was part of a network of tunnels used by the forces of the British Empire and Commonwealth during the First World War, was called Wellington Tunnels. And, uh, Ian, I want to talk to you about that. Opened quite recently, March 2008. It commemorates the soldiers who built the tunnels and fought in the Battle of Arras in 1917. Ian, tell me more. I will. The quarry, or the mine, um, was used to take chalk, extract chalk from under the town of Arras for, for building buildings um and in the first world war these uh quarries were rediscovered and it was seen as a as a good way of communicating and secreting soldiers underground so new zealand tunneling troops came out but when you get there do you have to crawl through tiny little tunnels Uh, no if only you did that would be far more exciting for the uh, school kids that we take with us we go down in a very posh 15 person elevator yeah, you go down a long way, don't you? You go down 120 metres. It's a long way. Yeah, a long way down. Anyway, uh, So New these are caves, they're, yeah, not, they're well, not really tunnels. The, the French refer, refer to them as, they, they were, it was a quarry, it was an underground quarry. The, uh, the, the chalk was extracted via, really, wells, but they were dry wells, just used for hoisting the uh, stone blocks up. So is it cold and dark down there? It's cold. It's slightly on the damp side. You yeah. would not want to spend a great deal of time there. If you put your hands on the walls, you can feel the cold and the dampness, and it would certainly penetrate clothing after a while. And it is. It does put a chill in your bones. So you, you just walk down there on your own with a with a torch, do you? Or? Well, we go down in groups of about 16, 17 with a tour guide. Oh, right, right. All. So it's all lit up down there, is it? It's... it's um, low lighting, yeah, I would call it. It yeah. certainly sets the mood. There are galleries, which are literally runs of six, six foot six high uh, tunnels for communication. In between, much larger caverns where uh, the army set up uh, kitchens, latrines. Um, they had hospitals down there and communication centres. But they were dug specifically by what the, the French refer to as... Uh, Lemon squeezers, which were the New Zealand uh, troops uh, who had yes. these funny pointed hats. They and did. It, they were recruited from the New Zealand Tunnelling Company and they included Maori and uh, Pacific Islanders. And they basically, well, one set of workers were on their knees, another set stood behind them and they just drove these tunnels forward at a rate of knots. Do you, is there anything there from, from the First World War still down There's there? There's bottles and tins, there are bunk beds which do actually look look the age. There's old communication equipment. You can see where the pegs were driven into the walls for the telecommunications and for the lighting. You can actually see soot marks. And the, probably the eeriest bit of the whole tour, or the, the, there are two elements which are quite eerie. The first one is you come across an altar where the service was held the night before the tunnel heads were blown. And the troops went up into no man's land. And that was thousands of men, wasn't it? 20,000 troops lived safe and secure below the streets of Arras and then were moved forward to these tunnel heads um, on the morning of the first 20,000? 20,000. So that's approximately... Just uh, hiding under the ground yeah, in ten- caves. a tenth the population of Colchester, hiding that's underground. Insane, yeah. And then what happened? What, what was the other poignant moment? Well, you stand literally at the exit. You, I think they take you to exit 10. And there were many, many of these exit tunnels dug. And on the morning of the battle, they blew 
the entrance is out and the troops were ordered to run up these exit points and into the battlefield. And you just stand there and just thinking, well, there's going to be an explosion and then I will be ordered to run. How long will I survive? Will it be seconds, minutes? Will I make it into the communication trenches on the other side? You stand there and then there's that really interesting choice of words as you leave. I am the man you killed. I am the enemy. You I am the enemy you friend. killed, my, my friend. friend. Yeah. Yes, that gets me. I have to say. Well, I think the Wellington tunnels has always been a highlight for many, many years for me. Those uh, those tunnels, that lift shaft is great, isn't it? Um, and, and and the whole galleries before you, it's it's unexpected. It is uh, deeply moving and uh, slightly cold. in Indonesia, or the Dutch East Indies as the sprawling archipelago was called back then, was a relatively quiet time as Europe tore itself apart in such a ghastly and meat-grinding way. The Netherlands remained neutral in World War I and so its colonies around the world were not involved in the war either. So we are talking about a very different story than the one in World War II, when the Netherlands was invaded and occupied in 1940 by Germany, and the Dutch East Indies were invaded at the end of 1941 by Germany's Axis ally, Japan. In the next four years, up until 1945, maybe as many as four million Indonesians died as a direct result of the Japanese occupation. That's five Indonesians dead between 1941 and 1945 for every one of the 740,000 UK soldiers who was killed in the Great War. But World War II was a different war. And we do have to admit that the statistics never fail to take one's breath away. Take World War I's global curtain call, the Spanish flu, which swept the world in 1918-1919. It may have killed more than 5 million people in Indonesia in the space of a year, and that was from a population of only about 50 million at the time. The same flu, which didn't come from Spain, by the way, took 250,000 lives in the UK including thousands of people in Colchester and the rest of Essex. The South and East Asian and Pacific regions were not really a prominent theatre during the Great War. 
Japan was on our side, of course, and there were some naval battles, and the Germans were dispossessed of their modest colonial territories, one of which was part of New Guinea Island and shared a border with the Dutch colony. So the Netherlands stayed out of the First World War, although it did have to reaffirm and indeed prove its neutrality over and over again, something that involved the war's combatant nations monitoring what was passing through Dutch ports. Back in the Dutch East Indies, this meant that there was much disgruntled uncertainty in some quarters about whether the local people would be dragooned into serving in the Dutch military to fight or at least support the fighters in the trenches of the far-flung continent of Europe. Nationalist agitators in Java were able to exploit this discontent. Exports from the Dutch East Indies to Europe of sugar, rice, oil, cotton, tobacco, tea and pepper came to a standstill as the First World War progressed. There were shortages of machines and medical equipment. This economic depression persisted well after the end of World War I as Europe staggered under the weight of its own economic and social woes. Famine and rebellion on the archipelago always seemed imminent. It was in this atmosphere and these grim circumstances that the Indonesian independence movement started to find its feet. There were the nationalists, there were the Islamists, and there were the socialists and communists, who may have taken some inspiration from Russia's abrupt exit from World War I in 1917. The Dutch spent the interwar years suppressing these movements harshly. Nevertheless, less than 30 years after the movement-kindling impacts of World War I and in the wake of the atomic bombs and the Japanese surrender, while also taking advantage of the Netherlands' weak state after five years of brutal occupation by the Germans, Indonesia finally declared its independence. Second of May, Sunday, afternoon, tea time. And about quarter to five, I went along to my company quarters to have a cup of tea. I'd only just poured out my tea when the sentry in front called out, Will you come and look, sir? So I got up to look. And out of the German trenches, I suppose about 600 to 800 yards away, great jets of yellow cloud were shooting up into the air like water out of a hose. We had come up and seen the effect of the first gassing on our way, so we knew what it was. We saw this smoke coming out of German trenches, and somebody said, look at your Gurkhas attacking, and they flew back again, the Gurkhas. Somebody said, it's gas. Of all this bloody mire 